want to say thank you so much to our praise team for a wonderful job today ushering us into the presence of the true and living God. We are so excited here at the Good Hope Church. Amen. Our anniversary coming up this week, and we're inviting uh, all of you to come out and be with us again. And then on the first Sunday in October, our early morning worship service will begin at 8 o'clock here at the Good Hope Church. We are now on the web, World Wide Web. You can go to www.goodhope.org, and you can tune in to the ministry of the Good Hope Missionary Baptist Church. Amen. We praise God for all that he is doing. Now, on last week, I said that I was preaching the final sermon in a series entitled Not for Sale. And that did not happen because I did not get finished last week. And so I plan today to uh, conclude that series. Amen. Amen. We'll see what happens. First Kings chapter 22. You find these words recorded. Beginning with verse 34. And a certain man drew a bow at a venture and smote the king of Israel between the joints of the harness. Wherefore, he said unto the driver of his chariot, turn thine hand and carry me out of the host, for I am wounded. And the battle increased that day, and the king was stayed up in his chariot against the Syrians and died at even. And the blood ran out of the womb into the midst of the chariot. And there went a proclamation throughout the host about the going down of the sun, saying, Every man to his city, every man to his own country. So the king died and was brought to Samaria, and they buried the king in Samaria. And one washed the chariot in the pool of Samaria, and the dogs licked up his blood, and they washed his armor according unto the word of the Lord, which he had spake. Last week when we concluded our sermon, we concluded with Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, crying out in desperation. God heard his cry and responded to his need for protection. Verse 33 captures the essence of God's response, stating, And it happened when the kings of the chariots saw that it was not the king of Israel that they turned back from pursuing him. Now we learn from verse 33 or last week that there are times when the only cry for help worth making is a cry out, to God. Am I right about it? Now, it's wonderful to have a loving family. I think we will all agree with that. It's wonderful to have family members that, that love us dearly. It's wonderful to have caring friends. We have friends that we uh, share special times with. And um, it's wonderful having uh, marvelous to have caring friends. It's great to have our health care needs attended to by competent health care 
professionals. And there are some wonderful, competent healthcare professionals right here, part of the ministry of the Good Hope Missionary Baptist Church. That's a marvelous thing to have doctors and nurses and medical techs and, and, and uh, attending to our needs when we need them. It's really advisable to have a 401k or some type of investment, some, some way of putting a little something aside for retirement and for emergencies. It's, it's, it's just good sense. It's advisable to do that, not to spend everything, amen, amen. but to put something aside for those times of need. However, the services those things provide and those people provide are limited. There are some matters in life that, the, that only the omnipotent hand of God, only the all-powerful hand of God can adequately attend to. Am I right about it? I mean, there are just some things that go on in our lives that only the omnipotent hand of God can attend to. There are certain things in our lives that even our doctors with their best intentions can't help with. There, there are some situations that we get into that, that family members can't, can't help us with. There are some things that will come our way that all the money in our 401k and all of our retirements and all of our investments won't be able to help us with. There are some things that, that only the all-powerful hand of God can help us with. So it was Jehoshaphat uh, cried out to God and God's supernatural intervention helped him in his hour of desperation. Now in verse 34, a different scene comes into focus. Verse 34 states, now a certain man drew a bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the joints of his armor. So he said to the driver of his chariot, turn around and take me out of the battle, for I am wounded. Now, I want you to notice something here. Although Jehoshaphat had been set up as the prime target, you remember that, right? Ahab said, you wear your robes and I'll disguise myself. Although he was set up, by Ahab as the prime target. Although Jehoshaphat was wearing his robe in battle, identifying him as king, as the royalty, as the leader. Although he was the most likeliest candidate to fall in battle, he escaped the hand of the enemy unharmed. Isn't that something? I mean, he was the one pushed out there. He was the one, he, he was the one set up. He was the one marked. He was the one marked for the hit, and he escaped. Now, on the other hand, Ahab disguised himself in battle. He wore nothing indicating his royal 
identity. No robes, no rings, no crown, no nothing that would give the enemy the impression or the idea that he was the one they were looking for. He hid himself from King Ben-Hadad and Ben-Hadad chariot captains. Ben-Hadad told his captains, now I want you to put this hit on, on Ahab. He's the only one I want you to hit. I, want you to, I don't want you to mess around with other folk. I want you to identify him, and I want you to take him out. And so there he was hiding from King Ben-Hadad and from Ben-Hadad's chariot captains, but he could not hide himself from God. Can I get a witness here? I, I mean, he had done everything that he could to, to escape the very presence of God, but there was no place he could go to hide. No darkness could cover him. No disguise could keep God from recognizing who he was. David said in Psalm 139, Oh God, thou hast searched me and known me. David says, You know God when I lie down and when I get up. He says, God, your, your knowledge of me is so acute, so in tune until you knew me before I was formed in my mother's womb. David said, not even a word from my mouth can be spoken. He says, oh, Lord, you know before I even speak what it is I'm going to say. And here it is, you have a wicked king trying to hide himself from God. Now... Ahab had been duped. He had been deceived. He had been hoodwinked. He had been swindled. He had been fooled into believing he could maneuver his way, watch me now, around the will of God. Isn't that amazing? I don't know where he got his degrees from. I don't know where he got his training from, but somebody had fooled him. That he was so intellectually astute and so militaristic that he could actually maneuver his way around the eternal will of Almighty God. He, he, he knew it was not the will of God for him to be in the battle in the first place. He fully understood Micaiah's prophetic word to him, warning him that should he go to battle, the army of Israel would be scattered on the mountains as sheep that had no shepherd because their king would be dead. Yet he took it upon himself to defy the word of God, the way of God, and the will of God. He fell hook, line, and sinker for a lie rather than embrace the truth. Isn't that amazing? Well, 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 you may ask yourself, I asked myself this week, why would he fall, as Pastor Speed would say, for the old rope of dope? <laughs> you, you remember Ali, don't you? You know, Muhammad Ali, that was one of his strengths. Why would he fall for that? Why would, why would, he, why would he take a wooden nickel? Why, what was he thinking? Well, we don't know for certain 
uh, because the text doesn't reveal it, but we do know enough about his character and the wickedness of human nature that these three things are possibilities. First, maybe Ahab was thinking that since he was king of Israel, he could live above God's law. Since he was the king uh, of Israel, he could, he could live above God's law. Since he, since he had the privilege of choosing the laws he personally adhered to in his kingdom, just maybe he thought with such misguided rationale that he could choose the laws that were applicable and appropriate in God's kingdom. Second, maybe Ahab thought that because he had power, the power to control the will of men, he could control the will of God. In other words, Ahab was the king. He told men to go, and they went. He told men to Come and they came. He told men to bow down and they bowed down. He told men to change their plans and they changed their plans. He told men to get up and they got up and he told men to get down and men got down. So maybe he thought that since he could control the will of men, he could break a man's will. He could bend a man's will. He could make a man change his, his planned course of action. Maybe he thought since he could control men, he could control God. Well, now some of you might think and that be thinking that's kind of far-fetched. No, it's not. You see, power has a way of corrupting the mind of those who are ill-prepared. To handle it. I don't know, I don't know if you, you've, you've noticed that or not, but power has a way of corrupting folks' minds. In other words, you can be working side by side with somebody today. Y'all can be having lunch together and talking together and working harmoniously together, but somehow or another they get a promotion. They get a raise. They get a little bit of authority over you, and then all of a sudden you see a change in behavior, a change in attitude, a change in disposition. That's because power has the ability to corrupt the minds of those who are ill-prepared to handle it. It was the historian and moralist John Delbert who wrote these words. Power tends to corrupt. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. British Prime Minister William Pitt said in a speech way back in 1770, 
Unlimited power is apt to corrupt the minds of those who possess it. End quote. Power in the hands of people who have inferiority complexes and poor self-esteem and control issues has a way of inflating their egos, leading them to vain decisions with disastrous consequences. That happened to Solomon's son. All while he was Solomon's son, he, he, he was all right, but he had, he had a flawed character. As soon as he realized his prospect of becoming king, he got foolish. And he said to the people, if you think my father worked you, you ain't seen nothing yet. I got more power in my little finger than my father had. Now, how are you going to rationalize that? Here, Solomon has been king for decades. Decades. Full of wisdom, full of knowledge, full of understanding. The people love Solomon. They are loyal to Solomon. They have decided to follow Solomon for who he is. And yet his young son came along. And said, I'm in charge now. I'm in control. And the people said, oh, yes. And they rebelled and the kingdom split. Well, third, maybe Ahab thought that because God had not immediately dealt with him for allowing his pagan wife Jezebel to introduce Baal worship to the people of Israel. And, and because God had not dealt with him directly because of the disrespect and the unjust treatment he had shown towards Elijah the prophet way back on Mount Carmel, and because God had not dealt with him for killing Naboth in order to take his vineyard, even though he did not pull the trigger, the gun belonged to him. Although God had not dealt with him directly for the interrogation, the humiliation, the isolation, and the incarceration of the prophet Micaiah for telling the truth, he thought that perhaps he could bypass God's judgment. That's the fallacy, isn't it? That sometimes people think because they get back with the little stuff that God has somehow or another forgotten about it or God has somehow or another gone on vacation or that they will escape the judgment and the punishment of God but be not deceived. God is not mocked whatsoever a man soweth. That shall he reap. You know anything about reaping? When, when you sow seeds, you don't reap the harvest tomorrow. Sometimes the harvest takes months. You plant the seeds and you, you wait and you wait and you wait, but eventually the harvest will come. 
now, 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 this litany of Ahab's foolish thought processes is a perfect illustration that all the wisdom of humanity dims in the view, in view of the wisdom of God. This period in Ahab's life correlates with the words of Job 5.13, which state, he, meaning God, catches the wise in human wisdom in their craftiness and the schemes of the devious are swept away. The schemes of crafty, clever, cunning, and conniving Ahab are about to be swept away. Why? Because there is a way that seems right to a man. But the end thereof is destruction. Notice the wording of the text in verse 34. A certain man drew a boar at random and struck the king of Israel between the joints of his armor. The phrase at random means that this certain man with a bow in his hand had no strategic plan. He had no set priority. He had no selected person upon which to shoot. He just drew back his bow and he let it rip. And what do you know? Like a guided missile, King Ahab was struck between the joints of his armor. Can remind me as I put this together, I thought about David and Goliath. Young shepherd boy fighting against a nine-foot giant from Gaul with all of his equipment on, all of his armor on. David ran to meet him, pulled out one stone from his pouch, slung it, and it struck Goliath in the forehead, the only open place on his body. It wasn't about David as a stone slinger as much as it was about God making a sovereign selection. Now, notice the wording of the text. Again, a certain man drew a bow at random, struck the king between the joints of his armor. No plan, no priority. He just shot. And like a guided missile, King Ahab was struck between the joints of the armor. The joints of his armor were small, almost unnoticeable spaces between one piece of armor connecting to another. Y'all want to find out whether just Google it. You can find out whether it's just, just put it in that Google, Google joints of the, of the armor. It, it was the places, it was his armor where it just connected. They were small, insignificant spaces. Almost unnoticeable spaces. 
which reminds us to the, of the second point. Sinners can run, but they can't hide. Now, let me clarify this. When I'm talking about sinners, I'm, talking, I'm not talking about people who have received Jesus Christ as Lord and, and Savior, sinners saved by grace. I'm talking, about, I'm talking about folk who reject the word, reject the will, and reject the ways of God. Those who thumb their noses up at Jesus, those who refute the shedding of his blood on Calvary's cross, those who refuse the resurrection, him as the resurrection and the life, those who turn away from the power of God, the praises of God, the purposes of God, the perspective of God, and the prerogative of God will not be able to escape the judgment or the judication of God. Scores of people around the world, some even sitting comfortably in churches, have a false sense of security, hiding behind the feeble, frail, and fallible armors of this life. I mean, people all around the world have no regard for the Lord Jesus Christ, hide behind a feeble and frail and fallible armor of life. Some are hiding behind economic armor. Think because they have money. Think because they have stuff. That somehow or another that money and that stuff will protect them from the discipline, the judgment, and even the wrath of God. There are some who hide behind political armor. Thinking that that because they know a person, a particular politician, they are part of a Republican Party or Democratic Party or Independent Party, and they know this governor, and they know that one, that somehow or another their political connections will protect them from the judgment of God or the wrath of God. There's some folk who hide behind military armor. Stuff like we have the most powerful military in the world. Therefore, we can do whatever we want to do. God has no way of getting through our armor. There are those who have fooled themselves into thinking that they can hide behind social armor. Social armor is boasting about who I know and who knows me. Folk who love to just name drop. And, and, and folk who know how to, how to name drop. And I know this person in this position and, and that put person in that position. And they hide behind that armor. It might work in a social setting. And people might be excited about that. And people might bow down to that. But not God. God is not interested the least bit in who we know and what we know and what they can do for us. Outside of our knowing Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, it does not really matter. Some even hide behind legal armor. I can do what I want to do when I want to do it, and, and I got the right legal connections, and I can get off. I can get away. They hide behind legal armor. Some are hiding behind the armor of power, of prestige, of prominence, of certain positions. Yet today's text serves notice to the sly, the slick, and the wicked. 
that there is an arrow of God's divine justice and judgment with their names on it. And it will not miss its target. I wish we had an opportunity to convey that message to folk who are hiding and who are playing games that, that God has a, a, a divine arrow. And no matter what your army is, no matter who you know and who knows you, God has an arrow. It has your name on it. Make no mistake about it, just as in the case of Ahab, that appointed hour will surely come. It might seem like it won't. It might take a while. Folk may seem like they're getting away with everything, doing all kinds of stuff and, and living high on the hog. But one day, God's era of justice will find his target. Verse 35 recounts the coming of Ahab's hour. He's gotten by with some stuff. But he has not gotten away. The Bible says the battle increased that day and the king was propped up in his chariot facing the Syrians and died at evening. The blood ran down from the womb until the floor of the chariot. Then as the sun was going down, a shout went throughout the army saying every man to his city and every man to his country. Point three is this. God sends his warning before he sends his wrath. Am I right about it? I couldn't help but think about, I couldn't help but think about old man Noah out there building that ark. Day in and day out, and folk laughing at him and mocking at him and mocking him and saying, we never heard of water falling from the sky. Old man Noah, you crazy. Noah just kept working. Pastor Trudell, he just kept building. Kept building. Folks said, you old man, nobody cares what you're talking about. Noah just kept working, just kept building. And one day it began to rain. Those who refused to go in were lost. God sent a warning before he sent his wrath. How many of us here today remember our parents and our grandparents? And, and uh, even back in those days, some of us are old enough to remember our teachers, neighbors, or, or some other responsible uh, person saying to us, all right, you're showing out. You, you're cutting up. That's what they say. That's what teachers used to say. Y'all can't say that now. And, and back it up. But back, and back in my day, you, you could say it. You're you, you showing out. I remember Mr. K. Patterson, our civics teacher, he said, now, you, you're, showing, you're showing out, you're cutting up, but after a while, I'm going to put something on you. That's what they say. I'm, I'm going to tear you up. That, that's, what they would, that's what they would say. I remember like yesterday, I remember like yesterday, I'm riding to, 
church with my granddaddy sitting in the back in, in the seat beside him in, in our Plymouth. And he would say to me as we were riding to church, he said, all right, boy. He said, I want you to behave today. He said, but if you don't behave when you get home, I'm going to get the strap. That's what he said, the strap. Now, now, the thing about granddaddy is that he would never get you in, in, in public. But whatever he promised, he delivered. And I remember showing out in church, and he said, all right, I told you when you got home, you'll get a whipping. So all the way home, I'm negotiating. Church show was good today when the granddaddy... Yeah, we had a good time today. Well, 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 Pastor Freeman preached today, didn't he? Yeah, he sure did preach today. Hope Grandmama got something good for dinner. Yeah, hope she got something good for dinner today. Get out of the, get out of the car, go in the house. Pastor Joe walk in the house, and, and somehow or another, hoping and praying, he's forgotten about it, and he would say, remember what I told you. Go in the room and get the strap. Now, the thing about it is he was, he was fair because he always gave a warning before he handled his business. Now, I live in Lakeland, not too far from Mulberry, not too far from Walgreens, and I mean Walmart, and they have a sign out there every, every, every so often, and the sign says this. Shoplift in Mulberry. Get a free ride in a sheriff's car. Now, it don't get no clearer than that, does it? <laughs> it ain't going to get no, I mean, you in lights, lights. Everybody can see it. It don't get any clearer than that. If you come here and steal, you're going to jail. I mean, it doesn't get any fairer than that. That's, that's a fair warning. So, if we can count on the judiciary fairness of the judiciary process of our grandparents, our parents, and our, our teachers, and even the county, how much more are we, are, are we to be counting on the fair warning of God. God warned Ahab multiple times concerning his negative attitude and his bad behavior. Notice 1 Kings 20 and 42. Thus saith the Lord, because you let slip out of your hand a man I appointed to utter destruction, therefore your life shall go for his life and your people for his people. What he's saying is, you let him go, I told you to take him out. Verse 43, so the king of Israel went to his house, sullen and displeased, and he came to Samaria. But guess what? There was no change. Another warning. First Kings 21, Ahab stood passively by and allowed his wicked wife Jezebel to have Naboth killed in order that, that, that Ahab might have his vineyard, which was located next to his, his palace. It was just a matter of convenience. 
Matter of fact, Ahab said, I got better vineyards. I trade you one of these. It was a matter of convenience. He had better vineyard. He just wanted the one that was closer to his house. So he allowed his wife to put a hit out on Naboth, and Naboth was killed. The prophet goes to Ahab and delivers a warning to him, stating in verse 21, Behold, I will bring calamity on you. I will take away your posterity, and I will cut off from Ahab every male in Israel, both bond and free. Ahab repented for a minute, but it didn't last. Another warning. Chapter 22, Ahab is back to his old tricks again. So God sent a prophet named Micaiah to warn him. 400 of his folk, his false prophets, foolishly told him to go for it, go to battle with King Ben-Hadad and the Syrian army, and, and you'll get control of Remoth Gilead. You'll be successful. But in verses 17 through 23, Micaiah warned Ahab not to do it, not to go there, not to be disobedient to God. Oh, thank God for those warnings. Some of us are here today because we heeded the warning. Folks said, don't go there. Leave him alone. Leave her alone. Some folk had enough God-given sense to accept the warning, and we look back, and we are so glad that we did. Ahab was warned by God, but he disregarded, disagreed, and disrespect the warning. His disregard was reflected in his attitude. When he was warned, his attitude went from bad to worse. It was reflected, his, his disagreement was revealed in his action. Whenever he heard the truth, he went on and did what it was he wanted to do anyway. His, his disrespect was replicated by his arrogance. When he disrespected God, he was arrogant in his misbehavior. His arrogance was, I'm Ahab. I'm the man. I do what I want to do. I'm the king of the land. So thus after the warning comes the wrath. Verses 37 and 38 recounts the tragic epilogue of Ahab's life. So the king died and was brought to Samaria. And they buried the king in Samaria. Then someone washed the chariot at the pool in Samaria and the dogs licked up his blood. While the harlots bathed, according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken. Now, you want to know the sad reality of this? The sad reality for Ahab is that it didn't have to end this way. That's the sad reality. It didn't have to end. This 
way. He could have, through obeying God, rewritten the ending of chapter 22. Didn't have to end this way. He could have arrested the downward spiral of his life by hanging a sign on the totality of his being, which read, not for sale. Now, while growing up in Columbia, South Carolina, I spent a lot of time around older people. I was raised by my grandparents, and then to me, then in those days, 30 and 40 were older. As I've gotten older, <laughs> older has gotten further. Isn't that amazing how that happened? I was in high school. I was graduating class in 1974. Y'all don't have to do the math. I'm 58. Graduating <laughs> 1974. And I used to, I, I saw class reunion, 1956. I'd be thinking, dog, they old. <laughs> I'm wondering what the people say now about the class of 1974. <laughs> Maybe they say 50 is the new 40. Uh, whatever. But while growing up in South Carolina, I often heard the older people talking about certain tragic events in the community. 